Welcome to the second Sunday in Epiphanies. If you remember, Epiphany means literally to shine a light on, and we're in this season in the church calendar from Christmas to Lent when we shine a light on Jesus. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple more stories that shine a light on things about Jesus, and they are very different stories, which is really interesting. They are wildly different. It's really interesting that they show up together at this point. If you've read the other Gospels, not John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you may have heard that we call them the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is another one of those big Greek words that we use in church all the time. Uh, Soon means together. You've heard that before in sunel dukumen. We talk about that. We expect good together. And optic is just what it sounds like. It's to see. Synoptic means to see together. And we say that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all sort of see Jesus in the same way. They tell the same stories in the same order. It very much looks like they're chronological. It starts at the beginning and goes to the end. And boy, John, John's gospel, if you've read it, is so different. It does not see Jesus the way the other three Gospels do. It has all sorts of different stories. Things are in all sorts of different order. We think there's probably two reasons for that. One is John is writing in the, probably the early 90s AD, many years, maybe 20 years after the other Gospels have been written, maybe more, that, that he's writing at a time when the Gospels are available. There's lots of stories about Jesus out there. And so he's probably writing things that people don't know. He's telling the stories that the other Gospel writers don't tell. And we also think that a lot of John isn't chronological, that he's not trying to just tell the story sequentially the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but rather he's putting stories together, or he's intentionally jumping around in time to highlight things. And and it seems like he's doing that in John chapter 2. So listen as we read the second chapter of John. Notice there's two stories here. Notice how different they are. Notice how different Jesus comes across in these two stories. So read along with me. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for several days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at table exchanging money. So 
he made a whip out of cords and he drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So, we're reading along this very first story, and it's very well known. You've probably heard it before, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Now, let me ask you, when you start this story, who's the main character going to be in this story? The way John writes it, the main character is going to be Mary. That's why he says there was a wedding in Cana, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and the disciples were also there. That, that is a classic way in John's world when you write a story and you've got a story that's gonna be about a lot of people. How do you tell who the subject is? Who, who's the most important person? You say it this way. You say, oh, that person did such and such. They were at this place. These things happened. And then there were others there as well. So right now, it's Saturday evening, and I'm filming this sermon. But I'm not here in the church alone. I can't film this alone. There's others helping me. One of our video volunteers, Yolandi, is here. She's doing the actual camera work. And then Jared, our technical director, he'll take it later, edit it, and put it up. So there's three of us involved in making this sermon. So if I told the story, I could say that Jared and I and Yolandi were all at church Saturday night to film the sermon. That would say in their world, if they were writing this, that would say that the three of us are the subject. Or <laughs> I could tell the story and make it really clear that it's all about me. I'm the subject. And if I was writing in John's day and in John's language, what I would say is, Jeff came in Saturday night to film the sermon. And Yolandi and Jared were there too. Right? That, that shows that there's this, these other people, but I'm really the center. That's what John says. This story is about Mary. And sure enough, what happens? There's a problem. They're out of wine. Now that's, wow, you talk about a bad thing to have happens. Weddings in this world usually last a week. People come and go, and to run out of wine makes you look really, really bad. That is seriously embarrassing for the families. Mary sees this, and she comes to Jesus. She initiates it. See, she says to Jesus, hey, there's this problem. They're out of wine. Now, we don't know what she expected him to do. We don't know if she knew he could do things. We don't know what she's expecting. But again, it looks like she's the subject. She sees the problem and she comes to Jesus. And notice how Jesus answers her. If you've read the other gospels, if you've heard stories about Jesus, this is a really unusual answer for him. Woman, why do you involve me? And normally when people ask Jesus things, he either says yes or he says no. He either does it or he doesn't. 
this is a weird non-committal answer. And, and I know it sounds kind of rude to us in English, you know, call your mother woman. It's not really rude in his world. I think the best translation that I saw as I was researching this is one guy translated it, dear woman. Dear woman, what, what do you want me to do about this? And, and that sort of gets at the flavor of what he's saying. It, it's not cold, but it's also not terribly warm either. It's not what you normally hear Jesus do. It's, it's very reserved. Do you notice that in this whole story, Jesus is very reserved. He doesn't initiate helping these people. And when his mom comes to him, it kind of looks like he's saying, this, this isn't time, mother. This isn't my time to do anything. Jesus is very much in the background of this story. I want you to imagine that this is a movie. Right? And you, you're, you're, you're behind the camera. What's the camera doing in the story? The camera starts on Mary. Mary is there. Then it widens a bit to show that her son Jesus and, and his disciples, and he's only got like six of them at this point, at least as far as we can tell in the story. It's not like he's bringing crowds of people. Jesus and some other people are there with him. And then the camera goes on to Mary, and Mary notices the commotion that they're out of wine, and the camera follows Mary, and Mary comes to Jesus. The camera's only on Jesus because Mary brought it there. And they have this little interchange, which ends, I love this, with, he's kind of like, you know, I, I don't think it's time for me to do anything. And she turns to the servants and says, yeah, do whatever he says, and then leaves. And so you've got these servants like standing there staring at Jesus. What else is he gonna do? The camera follows Mary to Jesus, and then it follows the servants out, and they fill up the jars. And then they come back, and then the camera follows the servants as the servants take out the water, and then the servants take the water to the wine steward, and then the wine steward calls over the groom. Jesus is hardly ever on camera if this is a film. It, it comes to him with his mother, it comes back to him with the servants, but that's it. Listen to what happens in verse nine. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Jesus doesn't even get credit for it. I mean, think, again, if you've read the gospels, think about when Jesus does miraculous things, what happens? Usually, he says something. Almost always, he says something. Someone comes to him, oh, Jesus, my daughter, she's dying. Come, please, lay your hands on her and heals her. And Jesus says, go, your daughter is well. And the guy leaves and he finds out, you know, that she got better at exactly the same moment that Jesus said that. Or two blind guys come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we want to see. And Jesus says to them, do you believe that I can heal you? And they say, yes, yes. And he says to them, then let it be as your faith believes. And boom, they could see. Occasionally he does something. Sometimes he touches someone or he rubs someone's eyes or, but he's active in the miracle. It's clear that he's doing it. But in this story, it's not clear he did it. John just says the water had been turned into wine. Again, the camera's not even on Jesus for 90 plus percent of this story. It's following these other people. Jesus is very, very much in the background of this story. He seems very passive. He's not being active, he's not out there. The camera, if this were a film, it's not following him. In fact, we're told at the beginning, he just happens to be there. And notice what happens at the end of this story. 
You have this story that seems to be first about Mary and then we follow the, the, the servants and then we follow the wine steward and the bridegroom. And then in the end, in verse 12, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Jesus has just done this miracle. I mean, that's a pretty neat trick. Imagine like all the money you could save if you could just take water out of the tap and turn it into wine for parties. Like he's just done something miraculous. But except for there in verse 11, where John says what Jesus did here, he doesn't even get credit for it. No one knows he's done it except for a few servants. And at the end, after this miracle, Jesus goes home and hangs out with his mom for a little while. I mean, how often does the Bible talk about Jesus and say, oh yeah, Jesus went home with his mom and he, he stayed there with her for a few days. Like he never does that. Stuff is always happening to Jesus. He's going places and he's doing things, but not in this story. In this story, Jesus is very much in the background. We're told finally in the end, it was him that turned the water into wine, but we're not even sure of that until we get to the very end. He's reserved. He's passive almost. He's not out front in this story. Now, compare that to the second story. Who is the main character of the second story? Look at all the sentences. Go through the beginning of the main story and look at what it says. It was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we find out at the end, actually, his disciples went with him, but they're not even mentioned in this case. Why? Again, Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the important one. They'll show up when they show up, but this is about Jesus. Verse 14, in the temple, he found people selling. Verse 15, he made a whip and he drove them all out and he scattered the coins. And to those who sold doves, he said, like in this second story, Jesus is absolutely the main character. He is the subject of every verb in the first several sentences. Jesus does all of this and he does it powerfully. In the first story, you have this Jesus who's kind of hesitant. When his mom says, hey, there's this problem, he's like, uh, this, I don't think this is, this is for me. It's not, it's not time yet. Boy, in this one, is Jesus hesitating? Oh my goodness, no. He comes into the temple, he sees what's going on, and boom, he gets at it. I mean, this, again, think of this as a movie. This is like something out of an Arnold Schwarzenegger action flick. Just Again, what is the camera doing? It's following Jesus the whole time. It never leaves Jesus in this story. It follows him up to Jerusalem. It follows him into the temple. You see him looking around in the temple courts and getting angry. <clears throat> now, that makes total sense. The, the temple is comprised of sort of concentric squares, or maybe it's long and it's rooms in a row. But you entered in one place in the temple and you could only go a certain distance in. If, if it is these interior rooms, or again, maybe it's big and the rooms start at one end, but only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, either the very center or the furthest most room. And only the priests and the Levites could go into the holy place, which is outside of that. And these rooms, these courts, they get bigger and bigger. 
The last court, when you first walk in the door of the temple, the first court you come to or the first room is called the court of the Gentiles. And if you were not a Jew, you could enter there. If you wanted to find out about God, if you wanted to know more about this, this Jewish God who claimed to be the only God, which is just nuts in this world, everyone on the planet is polytheistic, except for the Jews who claim there's only one God. If you wanted to hear more about that, the only place you could go is the very first room, the very first court in the temple, the court of the Gentiles. You couldn't go further. In fact, we found an inscription on the, from the temple between these courts that says in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, if you're not Jewish, don't go through here. You will die. It was a capital offense if you were not a Jew to go through the court of the Gentiles and on into the court of the Jews. So if you're not Jewish and you want to learn about the God of the Jews, the place you go is the court of the Gentiles. Only what's happened is merchants have set up in that court. Because if you are Jewish, you're just going to pass right through the court of the Gentiles. You're going to go into the court of the Jews. You're going to go further into the temple to make your sacrifices. And so your temple tax had to be paid in a particular type of coin. Well, there's money changers. So you could get the coins you need for the tax. You want to offer a cow. You want to offer a bull. You want to offer an ox. You want to offer a sheep. There's guys selling those. You know, if you came from far away, you don't want to have to bring a sheep with you. You sell a sheep in your hometown, you take the money, you come in, and in the temple court, you can buy a sheep and take it in and be sacrificed. But they've turned the only place that non-Jews can come close to see the God of Israel into a bazaar for the Jews. It's only there for the people who are going to cross through there and go on into the rest of the temple. So again, imagine our movie. Jesus comes in. What should be this place where foreigners and non-Jews and seekers can come and learn about God. You know, there, there ought to be people there talking to them. There ought to be priests explaining things. They've turned that into a marketplace for the use of the people who can go into the temple. And the camera follows him, and you see him getting madder and madder as he looks around and he hears all the noise. And, you know, maybe if this were a movie, we'd, we'd have a couple non-Jews walking around asking someone, you know, and could someone explain this to me? And no one gives them the time of day because they're too busy selling their sheep and their doves and whatever. And, and the camera follows Jesus as he moves around this court and he gets madder and madder. And then he sits down and he starts weaving this whip. And then, wow, he gets up and wherever these animals, whatever corner the animals are in, he goes after them. He literally whips the animals out of the court, out into the street. Maybe he whips the guys who are there with him or not. It doesn't say. But he goes after them. He goes over to the guys who are exchanging money so you can pay the temple tax. And you just see him sweep everything off the table and then throw it up. I mean, again, it's an action movie. And then maybe my favorite part, so he's all the big animals he's kicked out, all the tables and the money changers he's knocked, all you've got left is the guys over here selling doves. So they've got doves in these little, you know, probably wooden, some kind of cages, right? And what's Jesus going to do? And the camera follows him and he walks over to him, you know, and you can see them quivering in fear because... Obviously, the guys with the cows, right, they can catch their cows, and the guys with the coins, they can pick up their coins, but he busts these cages. Those doves are out of here. You're never getting them back. And you can see him huddling, and he walks up to him, and he says, get those birds out of here. I mean, seriously, 
This is a movie. You know, Jesus clears the temple with Clint Eastwood as Jesus. This is an action film. Jesus goes at them. There's nothing hesitant about him. There's nothing in the background about this. He is not reserved at all. It says in verse 12 that the disciples see this. And excuse me, it says in verse 17, the disciples see this and they remember this quote, zeal for your house will consume me. Literally, it's zeal for your house will devour me. It will eat me up. I will be eaten up with zeal. And wow, you see Jesus doing that. He is destroying things. He is not hesitant at all. He is active. As passive as he was in the first story, oh, he is so active in the second story. And then look what happens at the end. At the end of this story, in verse 23, people see Jesus performing these signs and they believe in his name. Now, that's the same thing that happened at the end of the first story, if you remember. If you look back in verse 11, his disciples saw this sign, he revealed his glory, his disciples believed in him. And that's how the first story ends. Notice how this story ends. That in verse 23, the people believed in his name. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Literally what John says is, the people believed in Jesus. But Jesus did not believe in the people because he knew what people were like. Again, you have this active Jesus. You have this Jesus who is in charge of the temple. I mean, how do people respond? He's whipping animals, he's threatening people, he's overturning tables. Nobody tries to stop him. What's the biggest defense they mount against him in verse 18? What sign can you show us to prove that you're allowed to do these things? Like Jesus is so totally in charge of this situation. Nobody stops him, nobody hinders him, everybody does what he says or they get run over. And even in the end, when the people see it and they're like, oh wow, and they believe in him, he doesn't believe in them because he knows everything. This Jesus is completely in charge. He can do whatever he wants. He knows everything. Now, compare these two Jesuses. I mean, look at these incredibly different portrayals of Christ. In this first story, John, and I think deliberately so, he is portraying Jesus as reserved, as in the background. Yes, he does do something miraculous, but he does it quietly. He does it secretly. He draws no attention to himself. Again, if John is making a movie, the camera never lingers on Christ. It comes to him when Mary comes there, and then it goes away with the servants, and it comes back to him, he tells him, and it goes away with the servants, and it goes here. He's not in view very often. And in the second story, it's completely the opposite. He is always in view. The camera never leaves him. He is never hesitant. He is never in the background. He is not quietly working to make things happen. He is whipping animals, overturning tables, and doing his best Dirty Harry impression to the dove sellers. Get these birds out of here. You've got these in two so different portrayals of Christ. Why do you think John is doing that? Because again, even if this is chronological and he did do the wedding at Cana and then later he goes to the temple, it would have taken him a long time to walk from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. 
a lot of things have happened to him between those two stories. There's gotta be at least a week if he does nothing but just travel from, Caper- from Capernaum, stay with his mom a few days, travel straight down. Lots of times John will tell us what happens in those travels. Not this time. This time he puts those two stories right next to each other. Why do you think he does that? Now, obviously, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. But I think that John is starting out right here at the beginning of his gospel, making sure that we understand that you can't character Jesus. Jesus is not one-dimensional. You know, again, he's writing probably in the early 90s. The gospels have been around for 20 or 30 years. There's lots of stories around Jesus. There's lots of churches all over Asia Minor and in Greece and into other parts of the Roman Empire. Christianity is spreading. I think John is starting out his gospel right here to make sure we have no illusions because it is so easy to turn Christ into a caricature. It is so easy for us to pick and choose the parts of the scriptures that we want to have the God and the Jesus that we like. You will hear people say all the time about the God of wrath of the Old Testament. And they will quote a handful of stories where God is angry. Folks, in my Bible, the Old Testament is 1,500 pages long. Yes, you can find stories where God is angry. But I could also easily say to you that the God of the Old Testament is a pushover. He threatens, but he never does anything about it. He's like one of those parents who tell their kid, you need to stop that. I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna count to three. Don't make me count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and nine tenths. I could tell you that the God of the Old Testament is wishy-washy and a pushover, and I can easily find a half a dozen stories where that's what God looks like. I think John is telling us, right here at the very beginning of our gospel, as he shines a light on Jesus, he is telling us that there is so much more to Jesus than you would ever think. That he's not one-dimensional. He doesn't always act in the same way. Because if you don't know that, you're gonna get fooled. If you don't know all the stories about Jesus, then you're going to get fooled when people pull one out and they say, look, here's Jesus. I could preach just the first story. Ignore the second one entirely. I just preach the first one and I say, look, look at Jesus meek and mild. Look at Jesus reserved. Look at Jesus not getting involved. Look at Jesus in the background, never calling attention to himself. You don't even know he turned the water into wine until John tells us as an editorial comment at the end. And then I could say to you, you need to be like that because the scriptures say, be like Christ. We are supposed to be like Christ. Everything I just said about Jesus in that story is true. And then I could make the leap and say, so you need to be like that. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be reserved. It means to be quiet. It means to be in the background. It means to never draw attention to yourself. Because look, that's what Jesus does. And it's all true. But how do you know it's not the only truth? You don't have you know it's not the complete truth. Because of the second story, when Jesus does none of those things. 
Or I could just preach the second story, and some people do. I could just take the Jesus of the second story, the Jesus who makes whips, the Jesus who beats people, the Jesus who overturns tables, and I could say to you, be conformed to the image of Christ. Look what Christ is like. Christ punches people in the nose. So you get out there as a follower of Christ and you punch people in the nose. Would you fall for that? I mean, if you're a Christian, I'm sure the spirit inside you would be testifying to you, no, that's not the whole truth. But would you know it's not the whole truth? Would you know that I've just picked up one story about Jesus and claimed this is all he's like? See, I don't think John's gonna let us do that. I think John puts both these stories right here at the beginning. When you first start hearing from Jesus and learning about him, we get Jesus in this incredibly wide range of emotion, this incredibly, incredibly wide range of action and initiative. I think John is telling us, you can't just have the Jesus that you want. You can't turn Jesus into a caricature or a one-dimensional person. You've got to accept all that he is and all that he means. But brothers and sisters, church, how do you do that? You gotta read it. Like, I hope you knew this was coming, because I don't think there's a January since I got here that I haven't preached a sermon about needing to read your Bibles. How will you not be fooled when someone takes this story and reads it to you? Look, Jesus made a whip. It says it right here. Look, verse 15. He drove people out. He scattered coins. He threatened people. Zeal for your house consumes me. When someone says to you, you need to look like that all the time, how are you not going to be fooled if you haven't read it so that you can say, but wait a minute, there's another story right before that where Jesus doesn't do any of those things. If you don't know the other stories, how are you not gonna be fooled? People pull things out of the scriptures all the time and claim it proves their point. You will hear people, people who can't stand Jesus or God, use Jesus in an argument. Well, I think that Jesus such and such and so and so. I don't think that Jesus would do. Why do you think that? Well, yeah, you probably found one story that looked like that. You will be fooled if you're not reading the whole thing. When someone comes along and pulls some story out of the Old Testament and tells you, look, look at the God you worship. How can he do that? How are you going to answer that if you don't know all the other stories that talk about similar things? When Jesus is tempted, he's sent out. The Spirit of God sends him out into the desert alone for 40 days. And in classic biblical understatement, it says Jesus didn't eat anything for 40 days. And at the end of the time, he was hungry. And then when he's hungry, the devil comes to him and three times Three separate occasions, the devil tries to get Jesus to do what is wrong. Do you know how Jesus responds to him? He quotes scripture. All three times, Jesus quotes scripture to the devil. He doesn't be the Jesus of the first story and just say, well, I'm not sure about that. And he's not the Jesus of the second story. He doesn't punch the devil in the nose. He answers him from the scriptures. Do you know, after he does that the first time, 
the devil quotes the Bible back to him. The devil does exactly what I said. He grabs a story, he pulls something out, and he quotes it to Jesus, saying to him, look, here's why you should disobey. And he quotes Bible verses to him. And Jesus does not go, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Well, it's in the Bible, I guess you're right. Jesus says to Satan, yep, it says that, but it also says, and he quotes other Bible verses back to him that show that what the wow, how he's taken this one story and twisted it isn't true. When Jesus gets tempted by the evil one, he responds from the scriptures because he knew the scriptures. I mean, heck, he wrote the scriptures, so he has an advantage over us. You got to read it. You got to read it. You got to put it into your heart and mind. I don't mean you got to study it. I don't mean you got to memorize the whole thing. Although, hey, if you want to, don't let me stop you. I mean, you've got to read it. You've got to be putting it into yourself. You've got to make your way through it regularly. So when people do pull out, well, look, here's Jesus punching some guy in the nose. So I think that means it's okay for me to punch you in the nose. That you're able to say, yeah, but it also says this. And it also says this. And you know, right before Jesus does that, he does this. And right after that, he does this. And he's quoting this thing from the Old Testament. The only way we are not going to get fooled is if we have read it. We've read it again and again and again. It has become part of us. It's become part of how we think and how we talk. So that like Jesus, even if people twist the scriptures and try and use it to get us to do something wrong, we say back to them what Jesus said to the evil one. Yeah, it does say that, but it also says this. I don't think you understand those verses right. Brothers and sisters, we're we're in a new year. Now's a great time to decide. You're gonna read the Bible. And and again, I'm not talking about reading 100 chapters. I'm not talking about memorizing the whole thing. I'm talking about reading a few chapters a day, every day, putting it in to your heart and your mind so that it becomes part of how you think. It becomes part of how we talk to each other, right? If you have a Bible reading plan you're using, blessings on you. Let me encourage you to keep doing it. If you're not, Go to our website. You'll find them. You'll find three different ones. One reads two chapters a day. One reads three chapters a day. One reads four chapters a day. If you read three chapters a day, you will read the whole Bible in a year. You can do this. It's not hard. I mean, it takes time. It takes work. But we're not looking for hours out of the day. We're looking for a few minutes every day that we sit down and we read a couple chapters. We put it in. Do that for a little while. Do that, just decide to do that for a month and see what happens. See how God uses that for you. But if you don't, if you don't know the Bible, if the only time you ever get scripture is 30 minutes from me up here, then I guarantee you, you are going to be fooled. When people come and pull out the Jesus from the first story or they pull out the Jesus from the second and they say, look, there he is, you need to do that. If you haven't read the rest of it, you will be fooled. So decide, come along, as we say on the website, come read the Bible with us. Many, many of us in the church are doing these plans. Come read the scriptures with us this year. See how it changes you. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord. 
Thank you for the truth of the scriptures. Again, thank you that I think John does put these stories together to show us that, that you, you're not just one-dimensional. And whatever stories we've heard about you, there's probably more to you than that. You act in ways that surprise us, which makes total sense. You're God. You are so much more than we are. Lord, I pray for us. I pray for me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Help us. Help us, Holy Spirit, remind us to be in your word regularly, to be reading the scriptures just a little bit every day, over and over and over, so that we know these things, so that we're not fooled, so that when people do come and try and just pull one story out from here or there and say, look, here it is, we need to do this, that we know the whole counsel of the Bible. We know the whole truth. We know everything that you have said. We've read it. That when your spirit wants to testify to us, oh, I don't think that's the whole truth, that he can do that because we've read it. He can remind us of the things that we've read. Lord, help us. You know we're fickle. You know we're busy. You know life is hard and difficult. That, That it is hard to carve out the time to do these things. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. We want to be people who aren't fooled. We want to be people who know you as you really were, not some caricature, because we just know a few stories. We want to have read all of them over and over again so that we know you as you really are, Jesus. We pray this for our sakes because we need it. And we pray it because it will bring you glory, Lord, that your people know the scriptures and know the truth and we're not fooled. And so we ask this in your name, Jesus, as we ask everything in your name. Amen.